Chapter six of the Autobiography of Moncure D. Conway, Volume One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Politics in Virginia, Reverend S. S. Rozell, Reverend Norval Wilson, John Moncure Daniel, Editor of the Examiner. My first appearance in print. Although after reaching home I recovered from illness, it was decided that I should not return to college until after summer vacation. Thus I had early in my seventeenth year five months in which to study things not taught in academy or college. Good opportunities came. My father's partner in the cotton factory, Warren Slaughter, a very intelligent gentleman, invited me to go with him in his buggy on a tour through several counties, Fauquier, Culpepper, Loudon. We visited villages and homesteads, in all of which Mr. Slaughter had relatives or friends, and I made many pleasant acquaintances. Another tour was with my uncle Eustace Conway, afterwards judge, in his buggy, to attend courts in Stafford, Prince William, Brentsville, and Fairfax. The presidential contest between Lewis Cass, Democrat, and General Zachary Taylor, Whig, was in full blast and at Brentsville I heard speeches from several political orators of Virginia. After its morning session the court adjourned till next day. At two a bell was rung, and a crowd assembled in the grove where arrangements had been made to give a hearing to Congressman Pendleton. But the Democrats would not let their opponents have it all their own way, and had secured the attendance of Honorable John S. Barber, Sr., the most famous orator in Virginia. The debate was opened by two able Warrenton lawyers, Payne, Democrat, and Chilton, Whig. Chilton was the Virginia nobleman who volunteered to act eleven years later as counsel for John Brown after the raid at Harper's Ferry. My father had been a delegate in the national convention that nominated Lewis Cass. My uncle Eustace was an ardent Democrat. So was I, of course but a note in my diary shows that bias did not quite blind me. Mr. Pendleton is certainly one of the finest political speakers I have ever heard. He possesses great fluency, much ingenuity, and ready wit. His speech was delivered beautifully, declamation unexceptionable, but his arguments specious. Of course. He was followed by Mr. J. S. Barber in decidedly the ablest speech I ever heard. Barber is a perfect orator. He has vast stores of information, and cannot be beaten at argument. His reply was the most scathing thing I ever heard. I regret, though, that he was so personally severe on Mr. Pendleton. Next day Uncle Eustace took me to call on Barber at his inn. We found him in a dressing-gown, his gouty foot swathed on a chair, his talk— well, the shining sword of yesterday had gone back into its scabbard. When the new Methodist church was being erected in Fredericksburg, the desire of some to make it elegant frightened several old-fashioned members, one of whom said of a proposed ornament, "'That will shock the old ladies.' "'But,' said Landon Huffman, "'the old ladies will be dead by the time we get into the church.' The prediction was nearly fulfilled." I cannot remember seeing an old Methodist bonnet in the new edifice. The congregation became larger and more intelligent, the conference sent abler preachers, 
and persons belonging to society were attracted. One preacher, Samuel Stephen Rosell, was very brilliant, and the church was crowded every Sunday. He was the younger brother of Stephen Asbury Rosell, the preacher most celebrated for eloquence in the Baltimore Conference, whom, however, he no wise resembled. Asbury Rosell was a dreamer who painted his vision, and was then caught in a rapture with it which enraptured his listeners. Samuel Rosell, though at times poetic, was mainly notable for vigorous thinking, for humor, sometimes satirical, and epigrammatic expression. He was a native of Loudoun County, Virginia, where Methodism was genteel. He had the look of an aristocrat, was the handsomest minister in Fredericksburg, and unmarried. But for his bushy hair and strong brow, his beardless beauty might have been thought feminine, and it was wonderful how such arrows could issue from that delicate mouth. You ought to get more religion if only to have more brains. You believe this in the abstract, but of what importance is the abstract? Hell in the abstract is only a magnificent display of fireworks. There were suggestions that Rosell elicited more smiles than tears, but such was the man. For me it was a grand thing that an accomplished, cultured, and eccentric thinker could find fields in the Methodist Church. Footnote. The fact that the brothers Rosell were both named Stephen gave rise to a legend. It was said that their father, and a famous preacher, was warned in a dream to give that name to every son born to him. In one case only he disregarded his dream, and it was said the boy became idiotic. End of footnote. The whirligig of itinerancy brought to our pulpit in 1848 a minister very different from any previous preacher, Norval Wilson. He was a well-bred man of fifty years. Although intellectual power looked out of his light gray eyes, it was from a somewhat caricaturish body. Small-headed, thin-visaged, beardless, with beak-like nose and receding chin, tall, lank, his movements awkward, yet withal refined, Norval Wilson was a figure to excite curiosity. But never did preacher speak to my inmost soul like this man. He was almost inaudible when beginning his sermon, and his voice never rose to a high pitch, but as he proceeded his eyes kindled with a strange fire, his tremulous tones came as if from Aeolian chords in his breast, and my heart lay like a charmed bird in his hand. There was no rhetorical trick, no sensational phrase, none of the stock stories of the pulpit but convictions personally and profoundly thought out, and uttered with few gestures and self-forgetting simplicity. His mission was to the individual heart. His word came from the depth of his heart, and deep answered unto deep. Our eyes at times filled with happy tears. When the enchantment ceased, I longed to clasp his knees. Footnote Dr. Alpheus Wilson, son of Norval, is now, 1903, an eminent bishop of the Methodist Church South, and is said to be a very able preacher. I had the pleasure of seeing him in the South Place Chapel when he attended an ecumenical Methodist Congress in London, and of renewing my acquaintance with him.
Unfortunately, I could not hear him preach, but good judges who remember his father assure me that the bishop, while quite different in style, possesses the like simplicity and impressiveness. End of footnote. But during my five months of vacation in Virginia, 1848, I came under another influence not favorable to my religious emotions, that of my cousin John Moncure Daniel. His father of the same name, my mother's eldest brother, a physician in Stafford, was a classical scholar. His mother, nay Mitchell, whose marvelous beauty I remember, had some Spanish blood. Dr. Daniel had recognized the genius of his eldest son, and personally attended to his education. But both parents died prematurely, and their children found homes with their relatives. John had already found welcome in the Richmond home of Justice Daniel, his father's uncle, with whom he studied law. But he had such a capacity for study that, without in the least neglecting legal studies, he mastered Uncle Peter's excellent library, which included the best old English literature, also many French classics. In this cultured home John gained his rare equipment for a literary career. Had he been born in old or new England, he would no doubt have become eminent as a man of letters. He had a fine imagination, a critical appreciation of music, and a style of writing equal to that of the best French writers, simple, lucid, artistic. My cousin gave up the law because of his passion for literature, and was appointed librarian in one of the Richmond libraries. He wrote articles on literary and political affairs, and was invited to assist in editing the Richmond Examiner, Democratic. It was not long before this journal was known as John M. Daniel's Paper, and he became its owner and sole editor. It was the most famous journal ever published in the southern states. It represented a new and formidable personality in politics. Slavery was harmonized by a theory that Africans were not strictly human beings, with the most radical democratic equality. Scientific essays were cited, and Carlyle's latter-day pamphlet, The Nigger Question, omitted from the American edition, appeared in The Examiner. The Examiner was always full of brilliant literature. It was the first Southern paper to review and applaud Emerson, Hawthorne, and other Northern writers, and now and then extracts were given from the anti-slavery writers, especially Theodore Parker. Daniel gave employment to Edgar A. Poe, some of whose poems first appeared in the Examiner. There was, however, a sinister side to the Examiner. It was as relentless as brilliant in its partisan attacks, and its frequent vivisection of politicians brought my cousin into many duels. I think he fought nine pistol duels, although no hurt resulted to any antagonist, he had no skill with any weapon. It is my belief that he lost his prospect of domestic happiness by the reputation thus acquired. He was attached to a very lovely lady, Miss Eliza Barber, daughter of the orator already described. I knew her well, and have always believed that his suit might have succeeded, had not her brother, afterwards senator, been frightened by the personalities and duels. He never married. In the summer of 1848 the Richmond Examiner was filling our whole state with talk. 
its press could hardly supply the demand. At every table, at every street corner, the subject was Daniel's last article. His wit, his brilliancy, admitted by friend and foe, fascinated me. I was seven years his junior, not without causing uneasiness to my father, who recognized in his brilliant nephew a seductive cynicism. I had for some time been fond of writing, but had never ventured to offer anything to a journal. The first piece of mine ever printed was an obituary with some verses on the death of Eustace, age four years, son of my uncle Eustace Conway. It appeared in the Fredericksburg paper, the Democratic Recorder, April 21, 1848. The obituary was anonymous, but I was identified as the writer. I find in my diary that I felt ashamed of it, but the afflicted hearts were grateful. But presently I was tempted to try something in the John Daniel vein. Uncle Richard Moncure was induced to accept nomination for the legislature in order that he might act on a committee to revise the Virginia Code. He had no desire for legislative life, and to go even for a session must involve sacrifices in his profession. A good deal of indignation was therefore excited by the exceptional efforts of the Whigs to defeat him. His opponent was Charles Francis Suttle, six years later famous as the owner of the fugitive slave Anthony Burns. The chief precinct in Stafford County was Falmouth, and Uncle Richard requested me to act as clerk at the election, which occurred April 27, 1848. The two dollars paid me for it was the first money I ever earned. Uncle Richard was elected, but the Whigs were sore, and I should have done better to let the matter rest. But the comedy of the election scene moved me to write a squib for the Fredericksburg paper in which Mr. Suttle's corpulence was alluded to, his name punned on, and one of his supporters, not named, made fun of. This supporter was a worthy neighbor a bachelor, I believe, whose vote was challenged on the ground that he was not a householder. His claim to be a householder rested mainly on the circumstance that he kept a cat. The discussion of this cat, the demand for authorities, all went on in the most serious and even stormy way, for the contest was critical, and this gravity made the scene so comic that an impish desire to describe it got hold of me. My little piece, Richard is himself again, signed Stafford, appeared in the Fredericksburg paper, and the first echo I heard was that young Falmouth Whigs were going about, horsewhip in hand, to discover Stafford. Falmouth was seething about the skit, all the more because it was copied in the Richmond Examiner and pronounced lively. That did not compensate me for my father's ridicule of it richly merited, and his discovery by my burning face that I was the culprit. This, my second venture in print, brought me chill and fever for my May Day. The Fredericksburg paper, the Democratic Recorder, was edited by our relative Samuel Greenhough Daniel, who had given up his profession, law, but I did not let him know the authorship of the skit just referred to, nor of others which I began to send in. My only confidant was my sister, in her twelfth year, to whom every piece was read. She invariably approved, 
and I cautiously dropped my manuscript in the paper's door-box. I wrote versifications signed Cleophas II, and tales signed Alfonso III. One of these, Scholarship, presents a senior invited by a freshman, a beau, to visit some pretty young ladies. The freshman, in conversation with the ladies, airs some bad Latin. The senior corrects him, but only to be himself put to confusion and apologized for before the ladies by the impudent freshman. I mention this because twenty years later I witnessed at Stockholm, Sweden, a play with the same motif. Another of my stories was Odaliski's Revenge, and opens with a tribute to the picturesque ruins of Potomac Church. Of this church not one stone is now left upon another, but I can remember two walls with fine arches and windows. In my tale the merciless master-builder, Hughes, has under him in building the church Odaliski and his son, last of the aborigines in Stafford, compelled by poverty to labor under some contract. Odaliski's son, forced while ill to do work heavier than he could, is struck by Hughes, falls and dies. Odaliski continues his work, but when he and Hughes are together on the finished tower, the red man hurls the white tyrant to the earth, then slays himself on his son's grave. The first solemnity in the Potomac Church was the funeral of Hughes, the second that of Odaliski. This was reprinted in the New York Herald as a veritable old legend, but it had no foundation at all. But now the presidential campaign, as we rightly call it, for it is a war-born quadrennial revolution, reached an acute stage. I became much enlisted in the contest, and wrote a number of pseudonymous articles in a satirical vein. Such partisanship was not favorable to the piety of a young convert, but this was not the worst of it. It was the main part of our democratic case against the Whig nominee, Zachary Taylor, that he refused to pronounce himself adverse to the rising schemes in the North for restrictive legislation against slavery. For the sake of one party victory, which we did not obtain, we must needs fire the Southern heart, irritate it against the North, and sow tares like the devil. End of chapter 6 Recording by Margaret Espayat